Welcome to episode 91 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Jody Greenier. Jody served in the Marine Corps from 2000 to 2005. I'm really excited that her interview lines up this week with the anniversary of September 11th happening on Friday because she talked about her experience of being in the Marine Corps and how it changed when September 11th happened. She also served in the initial invasion into Iraq and and then served again in Iraq in 2004 to 2005. She ended up leaving the military in 2005 because the career-filled counterintelligence that she wanted to move into didn't allow women, and that law was changed in 2016. Today, Jody is the Chief Executive Officer of Foundation for Women Warriors, a 100-year-old nonprofit organization that works with women veterans to utilize their strength, resilience, and achievements for overcoming obstacles as they transition into civilian life. This is another great episode, so let's get started. You're listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, author of Women of the Military, and a collaborative author in Brave Women, Strong Faith. I'm also a military spouse and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast as a place to share stories of military women, past and present, with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, Jody. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks so much, Amanda. I'm excited to be with you as well. So let's start off with why did you decide to join the military? Oh, geez. So I'm originally from Connecticut and my mom had me as a young single mother. And so growing up, I didn't necessarily have the resources to go straight into college. I also, you know, credit my 16, 17 year old self when I started looking into the military with being forward thinking. I knew that I did not want to stay in the town that I lived in and I knew I didn't want to go into debt for college. And so I found myself at the recruiter's office probably my junior year of high school thumbing through the book um, trying to find a job that was a, a good fit for me. And did you go to all the recruiters or did you know right away that you wanted to be in the Marine Corps? No, I, I went straight to the Marine Corps recruiter. For me, I, ha- I had a bit of a rebellious side in high school. And though I played sports, I didn't typically stick with them. But I was very physically active and uh, had a bit of chip of, on my shoulder and thought, well, if I'm going to do something, I want to do what is perceived as the most difficult. And so the Marine Corps did not disappoint. <laughs> so I, it ended up being a, a wonderful fit for the time being. Yeah. So you started looking in your junior year and then did you get all your stuff figured out your senior year? Yeah. So I I went in my junior year and looked through the book and, you know, the, the book of all the different jobs. And I thought intelligence was going to be more like being 007. And uh, much to my dismay, it was not. But I did end up 
selecting the intelligence field. And so I later became an intelligence analyst, but by picking that, I wasn't sure whether I was going to go to the Defense Language Institute, whether I was going to work in signals. So I picked that out my junior year, but I didn't actually go to MAPS until that summer. And I needed my mother to sign off, which she was, you know, happy to do so. She actually questioned me, you know, only four years, you can't sign up for eight. And I think she was in a hurry to get me out of the house. <laughs> yeah. So I I signed up that summer going into my senior year. So my senior year, I really knew I knew what I was going to do after high school. And I shipped off to boot camp four days after I graduated high school. So it was a rather quick turnaround. Yeah, that's kind of crazy to think that like you graduated and then four days later, you're off to boot camp. Right. I spared no moment. <laughs> but it sounds like you were like ready, like you knew what you wanted to do and you were ready to leave the smaller town that you grew up in. And Yeah, absolutely. I think I always felt like a bit of an outsider in my town. Um, so I grew up in the city Waterbury for quite some time since the time I was born until my freshman year of high school. And I went to a Catholic school from kindergarten through eighth grade. And then I moved to this small little town that bordered right next to the city. And the experience from switching from a Catholic school to a public school and then from a big city, you know, somewhat of a decent sized city to a small town was quite shocking for me. And I had to start all over again. So I didn't quite ever really feel like I was a part of a community there. And I think if anything, that accelerated my desire to get out of that town. Yeah, that makes sense. And Marine Boot Camp is segregated men and women, right? Correct. Yes. So what was that experience like to go to boot camp? You were Um, probably one of the youngest. Yeah, I I think it was... I wasn't prepared, at least I remember being a bit shocked that I was there with all women. I knew going in that I was going to be in an all-woman platoon, but I don't think I had ever been around that many women in my entire life. And I wasn't really phased by the yelling or the, the screaming. I think Growing up on the East Coast and being uh, Irish and Italian, we we do a little bit of yelling at one another. And so I kind of looked at the drill instructors like, okay, I can deal with this. You've never met my mom, but (laughs) we we are very passionate people. And, And so I think more than anything, I was just shocked at how many women there were. But, you know, I knew it was a game that I had to play in order to get on the other side. And to me, it was a very small sacrifice for, you know, the promise of the future of being a Marine. Yeah. I didn't actually know this until yesterday when I did an interview with a Marine. And he was like, yeah, why? Why are you guys all like not segregated? And I was like, I don't know, because... It's just normal. And so do you think that there's an advantage to being separated or do you think that the Marines should switch over like the all the rest of the branches? And That's a really good question. I think as we move towards a more equal and progressive future, having non-segregated or, or co-ed boot camp would definitely be the route to go. I do think that there may be uh, some advantage, you know, or there maybe was an advantage given the environment back then. As you see in all-girl high schools and all-girl schools, you have women that have, you know, their confidence is increased by being around more women. But I think what 
problem that presents is that you don't have men who are observing women actually completing things successfully or or even outrunning them. And so without that opportunity, I think it causes some implicit and explicit bias. And I, I think as we move towards you know, all MOSs are now open, all, all job fields are now open to women, that it just makes sense. And, you know, it, it, it should be no longer of an advantage. Actually, I think it puts us at a disadvantage. Yeah, like it might give you the confidence to get through it in the beginning. But then when you go into your career, then you're, you are co-ed and mixed together. And then yeah, that makes sense. I know what you're trying to say. As I'm failing to articulate what you said. Well, so. I mean, in the environment is we don't work with all women like we used to, you know, in the waves and the wax. And so I, I think about, you know, when I went to my first duty station, I was outnumbered. You know, I think back then, maybe the Marine Corps was around 5% women. I was in a unit with hundreds of men and I was like one of just a couple women. And so the sooner we can kind of commingle, uh, I mean, it, it just makes a, a lot more sense these days. Yeah. And so you joined in 2000, which was before September 11. Did you see the military change as the war happened or what was your experience like? I, I did. I don't think that I realized how how much of a change uh, was being made. But, you know, I, I think for me personally, as an intelligence analyst, when I went to my first duty station, we did a lot of wargaming and preparing and learning about enemy order of battle, which in layman's terms is like enemy weapon systems and, you know, what their most likely course of action is and learning those things in an environment where I felt like men definitely had an advantage because they watched things like G.I. Joe and war movies where I wasn't necessarily exposed to that so early on. It took me a while to get a grasp on some of the verbiage and just kind of wrap my head around the big picture. But once 9-11 happened, that really solidified how important my job was and, and it gave it a different meaning. And so, you know, after 9-11 occurred and I was at Camp Pendleton, 1st Marine Division during uh, 9-11, Actually, we, we, you know, we got into work that morning and watched the towers fall from our TVs in the uh, G2 Intelligence Operations Center for the 1st Marine Division. And um, actually, one of our Marines was from New York. And, and being from the East Coast in Connecticut, we call ourselves the best small town in New York, though we're not actual New Yorkers. Uh, it, it just, it really hit home. And it was a very uncertain time. And it, it, it really, you know, we banded together and we weren't sure what was going to, what the future was going to hold. But I remember it being in this very weird purgatory of, you know, not knowing where we were going to go, but knowing we were going to go somewhere. And I think the the time in between 9-11 and, and for me going to Iraq drastically changed. Now we're working on all different contingency plans. And really, I mean, our free time was limited. And we found ourselves in 29 Palms doing training a ton. It just took on a whole new uh, serious and purpose-driven feel. Yeah, so it was like you were doing exercises and you were preparing and then it was like the real thing and it kind of changed everything about what you guys were doing. Absolutely. And I think at, I was 
I was 18, 18 years old at the time. So I, I went from this small town in Connecticut to thinking, you know, I was going to be 007 <laughs> to now, uh, the, you know, our country was in crisis and had been attacked. And it, it just became this early real feeling for me that has never really subsided since that point. Right. Yeah. It changed everything. That's yeah, that's crazy. So you said, where, where did you say you were based the first time? Camp Pendleton, California. Okay. And what were you guys, you guys were doing exercises and you were preparing and then 9-11 happened and it kind of like made it so that you guys were doing more exercises and more stuff in the field. Right. Getting ready for whatever was coming. So was there like a time of like, you said there was like this purgatory where you were like in between knowing what you're doing, like, how long did that period last before you went somewhere? I ended up going to Iraq, or excuse me, Kuwait in February of 2003, and was based at basically at a staging area for almost a, a little bit longer than a month prior to us invading Iraq. So we were at the staging area collecting as much information as we could about, you know, where threats were. And then, uh, you know, we kicked off that air attack on March 19th and then moved into uh, crossing the line of departure. So I would say the purgatory was that time between, you know, September 11th and until we really figured out that we were then deploying to Iraq. Though I will say we were we were preparing other units that were then going to Afghanistan because obviously Afghanistan kicked off a, a little bit sooner or much sooner than than Iraq. So it, it was probably a couple months, maybe a year before we went into Iraq that I knew it was imminent that we were going somewhere. Yeah, that makes sense. And you were part of the initial invasion into Iraq. So what was that like to be, well, to be a woman and like be kind of on the front lines of, or would you say like you were in the initial invasion? So, and there isn't really a front line. So what was that like? Right. So I I recently wrote uh, my reflection on this uh, and uh, it was, it was pretty cathartic and therapeutic to sit down and and take a reflection given that the 17 year anniversary of the invasion of Iraq just passed. So when we got to Kuwait, we had brought a ton of stuff with us. You bring a sea bag, you bring your, your pack. And we were told to, you know, just take what you need that can fit in your pack because that's all you're going to have. And we had a gunnery sergeant who was like our senior staff and uh, staff non-commissioned officer bring us around in a school circle. And he said, you know, I want you to write a letter home. And this letter is only going to be delivered to your family if you're killed in action. So it's going to go in this bag with the rest of your stuff that's going to remain here uh, in a Connex box. And if you're killed in action, it's going to go home. So I want you to think long and hard about what you want to say to your families. I think he probably added some things about like, don't be petty. If you have any type of broken relationships, this is the moment to fix them. And that really hit me like a ton of bricks. At this time, I was 20 years old. You know, my relationship with my my mother 
had definitely gotten better because I was no longer living in her house, breaking her rules. But there, you know, it was loaded. It was loaded. What, what do I write in this letter? So, you know, I, I, I had some time to reflect, but it was like, how do I justify this potential future death to my family? But also, how do I justify my life up until this point to myself? I didn't know much about feminism, didn't get any women's history classes in high school. And so in writing that letter, one, I thanked my mother for her sacrifices. Like I said, she was a young single mother up until uh, she met my stepdad. And, and my sisters were significantly younger than me. So my sister, Josie, who's also an Air Force veteran, is eight years my junior. And then my sister, Julia, was 14 years younger. So they at the time were 12 and six. I thanked my mom. Uh, that was very emotional. And then I also thank my stepdad for his patience because I was definitely more of a hellraiser than a bookworm. And then um, when it came to my sisters, we were still reeling from 9-11 and feeling very vulnerable. And I think uh, regardless of where I stand on the war now, our actions seemed somewhat justified in the absence of a lot of information. And so... To me, I, I justified my my potential future death and my service as a means. You know, I, I simply wrote to my sisters, you know, I died for your freedom so that you as girls and young women know that nothing is off limits to you. And uh, that was a very sobering moment. But aside from 9-11, actually crossing the line of departure, I think that moment has been cemented in my mind forever as uh, that was the day I really needed to my life's purpose, my life's work, and you know any decision I were, were to make thereafter. And so writing that just prior to, to the invasion of Iraq, I think I, I really I gave myself this meaning that kind of drove me through. And when you talk about like the actual invasion, we were, you know, we swapped in between the back of a Humvee that was not fortified by any means. It was like back then it was like plastic, you know, plastic and almost tent material. And then we also were in a five ton that we were facing outboard with our weapons and we were sitting on sandbags in the middle. And it was, it was a weird and exciting and a very uncertain time. And, you know, we would leapfrog with our, our, we had a forward unit that would go ahead of us and build up calm and lead the war and then we'd go and relieve them and we'd take calm and lead the war. And we outpassed our supply chains. And I mean, I remember, you know, it was, I, I don't think as a woman, it really hit me other than like, I felt like a Marine because in that moment, there was nothing different about me compared to the man to the left or right of me. We were all living in the same experience and doing the same thing. Yeah, I think I did an interview a couple of weeks ago with someone and they were like, well, what was it like to be overseas? And I was like, it, I mean, it was the same as the guys next to me. And I felt like there was a lot less discrimination than I had stateside because I would like say, hey, I don't think we should do that. And instead of being like, oh, you're whining, they would listen to me because we were all in it together and it didn't matter what you sounded like or what you look like. It was like a team effort and we knew lives were on the line. And so it kind of took away some of the bias that sometimes happens stateside. It kind of sounds like a similar type of thing for you. Absolutely. And I think when we when we actually um, 
So in between when we were moving, when we would stand up and operate, we didn't have the privilege or the time to question whether someone could or could not do their job. So during that time, I was a collections analyst. So my job was to take information from all different assets, whether they were ground sensors, our unmanned aerial vehicles, our recon and sniper teams, and fuse that into a picture where I would then work with the targeting officer from artillery, and we would decide whether we can fly a UAV over and drop Hellfire missiles on a target, or whether this was something that we could use artillery on to mitigate threats to troops. So in that moment, my job, you know, every every day, people's lives were in my hands, and my team really had to believe in me and trust me to get my job done. Otherwise, they couldn't do their job. And I think if there was any any type of bias or discrimination, it was probably from units or people that did not have an intimate working relationship with me uh, that allowed them or afforded them the opportunity to hold some sort of bias. Yeah, I totally agree. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. It sounds like it's such a crazy story to think about like what you were doing. And I mean, I know that women have been there, but it's just so... It's so empowering to like hear stories from like actual women who are there and to see like what you did eventually led to the now all jobs are open to women. And I think each woman who deployed and did their job just because that's what their job was. That's part of why the change happened. And it took a long time, but I'm just really thankful that we can share these stories so that people know what we've been doing from the beginning of the war and not now it's 2016 and women can be in all the, you know. Right. Or even when we look back on the Revolutionary War, the women that disguised themselves as men to provide, you know, care to the wounded. Women have for for so long uh, have done jobs outside of these traditional gender roles. And it's just taken a long time for the rest of society to uh, pay homage and open the gate for us. So do you want to talk any more about the invasion? Did anything happen that was really like something that stuck in your memory that you, you just talked about how you wrote and how it helped you with your feelings? Was there something that came up in that writing process that really was pivotal from looking back? I think uh, for me, it was two things. One, you know, that exercise of justifying my death to my family or my potential death to my family, obviously, uh, and thankfully I'm alive. And then also my life to me, justifying what does my life mean? Those exercises, one, I, I really, I knew in the Marine Corps, I was not blinded to the bias and judgment of women uh, up until that point. I had experienced uh, people that, you know, were, were judging me based off of a characteristic beyond my own control. But I think for me, it's solidified in that moment. One, this was for my sisters. And two, I had a huge amount of responsibility. And uh, my job was a very real and and critical component in the war. I had gained so much confidence and clarity and meaning from that exercise. And that just, that carried me through the rest of my time in the Marine Corps and uh, up until this point. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a really good exercise. I I wish that they kind of made everybody do that before they go off to war because then it kind of puts it all in perspective. And like you said, it didn't just change like how you got through the war, but like it changed your whole outlook on like, if I do survive, then what am I going to do with my life afterwards? Right. Yeah. So you got home from that deployment. How long were you in Kuwait and Iraq before you came home? I was in Kuwait from February until we crossed the line of departure in March. And then from March until late June, went all the way up to Baghdad and then back down to Diwania and stayed there. And then combat operations was announced as over. And uh, it wasn't long after that, that I went back to Camp Pendleton and then I redeployed to Iraq in February of 2004. And so that deployment, I was there for a year. So a total time military or Marine Corps service uh, in Iraq was about a year and a half. Okay. And did you notice a difference? Because it was like, was it six, like six to eight months later that you went back? And did you notice a difference in... Oh, it was palpable. So during the invasion, as we're you know driving north into into Baghdad, you had little kids and families on the side of the road waving flags and you know receiving supplies from us. We were giving out these humanitarian meals, you know, packaged meals to them. And we were very welcomed, even when, you know, we stopped at some of some of our staging areas in, in Iraq at the time, we would go to local markets and be well received and work with some of the, the, the local communities. That all drastically changed when I went back. Now we were dealing with improvised explosive devices. We were dealing with indirect fire attacks. It was a very, it shifted from conventional warfare where you are targeting military units to unconventional warfare where the enemy is almost hidden and disguised in in the general public. So it was very different. It was I would say it was a, a, it's impacted me a, a lot more than maybe the initial invasion. The initial invasion was this exciting, uncertain time. My job changed drastically in in two thousand four and two thousand five. I mean, I was there for Operation Alfaj or Fallujah. I traveled all over the West Al Anbar province in Iraq and did um, intel exchanges with counterintelligence teams. I would equate my job at that time to being a gang analysis detective, if you will. We're trying to figure out who is doing what and working with who and shipping what weapons. And it was very, very different and a very volatile time. And you didn't know who you could trust. And it was, yeah, it was difficult. I would say, to give you an example you know, we had an operations officer from G3. So in our communication center, you have all of representatives from your admin, from your operations, from Intel that are all working together uh, around this one big area and screen. And so he had wrote a letter to his wife and emailed it off and went to go use the Portage on. And then um, we had an indirect fire attack that killed him while he was in the bathroom. And then when he came, you know, he didn't come back. Uh, and so I, yeah, it was just a very, very different time. You know, I was working with a woman who was a translator. We had a tips line. So 
people would call us and she'd get information and translate it. And then I would take that information and try to corroborate it from other sources and send out, you know, essentially the intelligence I was doing then was driving operations and it wasn't just dropping Hellfire missiles or using artillery. It was it was actually sending infantry teams uh, into raids and doing leave behinds and direct action uh, type of movements. So it was just uh, it was a very different time. When I would try to go do intel exchanges, depending on the base that I went to, uh, typically there was a woman there. And so there was a couple times that I would land uh, off of a helicopter, meet with a counterintelligence team and um, be asked to leave the base because I I was a woman and uh, I wasn't able, for whatever reason, I was still, you know, discriminated against. Can't have women on our infantry bases, yet we were all in the same country operating typically the same way. So it was, yeah, it was a different, uh, a very different and difficult experience. Yeah. So much change. And like, it's crazy because it wasn't that long. It was like you were there for the initial invasion and then came back less than a year later. And it was like a totally different war. Yeah. The people, the way that you were treated by your fellow uh, Marines and just, that's crazy how much change happened. I mean, it, it was that shift from conventional warfare to unconventional. Mm-hmm. So you got home in 2005 and you also left the military in 2005. So why did you decide to make that switch and get out? So my last deployment ended February of 2005 and I was due to go on terminal leave or get out of the Marine Corps in April of 2005. And so while I was in Iraq, I was uh, toying with different ideas uh, about staying in. And I had, I felt like I had reached the peak of my career as an intelligence analyst, all sorts intelligence analyst. During uh, Operation Fallujah, I was the intelligence watch officer while our watch officer went to support another unit. And so... Here, I was an enlisted sergeant at the time in a captain's billet, actually probably a major's billet, and I reached the peak and I knew that nothing else that I could, you know, given that this was going to end soon, uh, that was probably my my idea was that I, I wasn't going to be able to do much else than that. I, I couldn't go to infantry units, as, as we discussed, I was being kicked off the bases. I wasn't able to, you know, support their intelligence operations. And that to me was where I wanted to be, somewhere closer, you know, leading small team actions, provide like actual ground, you know, just be closer to the fight and have uh, more of an impact leadership wise. So I knew that wasn't an option for me. I considered briefly uh, about becoming a drill instructor and I thought, okay, well, you know, after living through something like this, I don't, I'm not sure that I want to spend the next three years of my life yelling at women. It seemed, it, it just seemed like I could use, you know, my talent or something, something else, given that I had all this skill. I considered um, going into counterintelligence and I really wanted to do that. However, that was off limits for women. At some point, they, they changed a little bit where you could go into counterintel, but you were not part of the actual human intelligence teams. And that really was not something that I wanted to be a part of. So I kind of just told the Marine Corps, like, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Like, I I gave you my best and you do not want to support 
me as a Marine to advance my career where I want to go. And while I appreciate everything that I gained and this was a very formative time in my life, I, I didn't I didn't feel it necessary to sacrifice my own personal strategic plan for the plans of the Marine Corps. And honestly, I'm so glad that I didn't. Yeah, that makes sense. You had given your time and you kind of, I like how you said you like reached a peak and like you wanted to go the next step and those doors weren't open for you. And so you decided to make that transition. Yeah, I equated to, you know, knowing that you can run a Boston qualifier time, but being told like, oh no, you can only run an 11, 12 minute mile. Like don't go any faster. Don't do any better. And that to me was not an environment that um, encourages you to be your best or to stretch. And I wasn't willing to stunt my growth for the Marine Corps. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about your transition. What did you do when you left the military? Well, the first year I definitely uh, grew, but in some painful ways. So when I got out of the Marine Corps, I went back home to Connecticut, <laughs> which was not ideal. There, there was absolutely zero talk about what do you do when you get out of the military back then. There weren't, you know, programs like uh, the transition programs that we have today, which I feel like the market's oversaturated in terms of what you can and, and can do and where you can go and what kind of resources there are. So I winged it. My parents did not necessarily have the. The, the experience to direct me in one way or another. I went home and I registered or enrolled into a community college. I worked as a bartender and a waitress at two different restaurants. And I was thrust back into an environment that did not believe I, as a woman, did anything of value in the military, questioned my service. I mean, this is probably not saying much about my reputation before I left the military, but some thought that I had maybe got thrown out of the military and had not been, uh, which to me was baffling. But here I was, this completely different person. I had grown so much. I had a completely different perception of myself in the world. And I was back in this box in this little town that did not know who I was anymore. And it was actually the place that I was trying to escape from. So it was frustrating. And when I say I grew, I learned a lot about myself. I remember the first time it kind of hit me. I was waitressing at a little Italian restaurant and this woman was, you know, a bit snarky with me about holding the capers from her salmon. And I remember thinking like, I was an intelligence analyst and worked for General Mattis. How did I get here? You know, like I used to give briefs on how to mitigate threats to troops. And now I'm taking an order about holding capers on salmon or the time, you know, like pouring Jaeger bombs. Jaeger was a huge thing back then. Being like, I used to direct Hellfire missiles. Like how, how did I end up here? And I was just so very frustrated. And uh, I felt like I was someone that nobody wanted to believe I was. And so that first year was difficult. So difficult that I took a couple girlfriends from high school on a trip out back out to California to meet with some of my 
buddies that were still in the Marine Corps. And while I was in California, I was looking, you know, back then the internet was just starting to buzz. I was looking in a newspaper at the classified ads for a waitressing job because I was like, well, if I can just go back to California and be around my friends that are still in the military, maybe this this would be better than being in this small town uh, that I was trying to escape. In that trip, I reconnected with a friend that was working at the Space and Naval Warfare Center. And he, has, he said, well, when you get back home, just send me your resume and um, I'll float it around for you. And I did that. And within a month, I had an interview at the Space and Naval Warfare Center. And I mean, to this day, I'm so, so grateful that I was that frustrated that I was like, I'm just, I just need to go visit California. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. And it's awesome that he was able to help you get that job and not just be like, oh, send me a resume. And then like he actually took action and got it moved around so that you could get that open door. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's to the benefit of military or Marine Corps culture of, you know, leave no Marine behind. We're all in this together. I think more than anything, we were such good friends. He wanted, uh, you know, he wanted someone at work to <laughs> familiar. And so I, I did get that job. My first job was I was a curriculum developer for way back in the day. We used to call it NBC, but now it's CDRN, so um, chemical, biological, radio. So it was a software program that predicted hazards uh, and whether you need to quarantine. It actually, it'd probably be pretty uh, useful today for what we're experiencing. But Right. Yeah. Right now when we're recording, it's during the COVID-19. So we're all isolating ourselves and trying to get through this. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing today. Yeah. So I had a pretty lengthy career in the intelligence field. Uh, I worked that one curriculum developer job led to um, me instructing at Camp Pendleton and then doing a couple deployments as a contractor for DOD in the State Department. But I got to a certain point where I was just numb with constant information and intelligence being thrown at me. I just kind of grew exhausted with always being in the red or always being observant and feeling like I needed some sort of reprieve. So I got involved with a startup nonprofit organization and ended up developing their funds and leaving that as the vice president. In that, I found I really had a passion for veterans and helping them. So I started looking to make a transition into the nonprofit sector. So back in 2016, I found an organization and I interviewed with them and they had been around for almost 100 years. So now it's called Foundation for Women Warriors. Back then, um, it was called Military Women in Need, which was a name that I did not find appealing whatsoever. So one of the first questions I asked was, when are you going to change your name? And so when I got that job, I led the organization through a huge rebrand. They started off serving widows and mothers and war nurses back in 1920. They gave them like homes at a much reduced rate. Over the years, they opened up programs where they started giving out stipends. And so in 2006, they opened up programs where they primarily focused on older generations. They started opening up programs for women veterans of post 9-11. So today we provide emergency financial stipends, childcare assistance, uh, which is a huge overlooked component of transition, not just for women, <laughs> for all families. We work 
hand in hand with partner agencies to do warm handoffs and resource and referrals. Uh, and then we also have a connect with community program, which was really born out of out of the need for women veterans to connect with one another, but also their local community. So we uh, serve all of Southern California. It's a wonderful organization. We have a phenomenal team. And I'm so lucky that I get up every day and get to serve women veterans in a way that served. Yeah, that sounds like such a cool organization. And I'll make sure to have the link in the show notes. So if people want to learn more, they can check it out. I think it's really cool when you see how like your experience happens and your life happens. And then somehow you get pulled back into like serving, especially serving the veteran community. And it's just it's life breathing. At least it has been for me. <laughs> it, it really is. I think probably one of the most profound things that can happen in someone's life is for you to be able to mitigate or solve the pain that you experienced in someone else's life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so it's so cool. And I really enjoyed learning more about the initial invasion of Iraq because I've talked to a few different people and like they're at different stages, but I've never talked to a Marine about the invasion. So it's been really cool to hear your perspective and just to hear your story and all the cool things that you were doing. That's so awesome. I'm glad that I had the opportunity to share this with you. And I'm so happy, Amanda, that you created this wonderful platform to get women veteran stories out. Uh, it's so important, and I, I absolutely adore what you're doing for our community. Thank you. And I almost forgot my last question because I got so excited. But if you were going to give advice to a woman who was considering joining the military, what would you tell them? That's a great question. I, I mean, there's so many different variables. Is she my former self? Uh, is she, is, uh, I would say, um, you know, get the easy stuff out of the way first, like your physical fitness. Don't let anyone question that. You know, that if you're strong in your physical fitness, that buys you credibility elsewhere. So, you know, make sure that you're, you're, up to snuff in terms of your physical fitness. Be, be, you know, take some advice from from great Stoics. Uh, you know, don't take anything emotional. People attacked attack your label or your role before they actually um, know you. And so, I, I would say physical fitness. Be a bit of a Stoic, but also, I think I was in a position way back in the day where there was like this idea there could only be one woman, and uh, that seldom offered the opportunity where you could pick up and support other women. And I see that drastically changing. So I would offer go in the, in the military, do your absolute best and make sure that while you're doing that, that you're mentoring and helping another woman along the way. And if you don't, you know, if you don't have one, seek one out. Yeah. So help other women. Yeah. And as you know, if you listen to the podcast, if you're looking for a woman to talk to about joining the military, you can always reach out to me and I can connect you with someone. Or if it's Air Force and it's officer, then I can help you. But I have I've interviewed all the branches. So I have a woman from every branch that you can talk to. And I think I have officer enlisted. So there's plenty of women out there willing to talk to you if you have questions. So make sure to reach out if you have questions. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed getting to do this interview. Thank you so, so much. And again, I love what you're doing. Uh, it's so important. You will be uh, marked in history as a innovator and a storyteller. So thank you. Thank you so much. 
listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support. Thank you.